Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Event, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anatta and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. Regular listeners of the pod will know that I've checked in with loads of guests about grief. That includes suicide grief, parental grief, sibling grief, and so on. I have never done a podcast with a story of grief quite like this one, though. Fegan Murray is my special guest for today's episode. Fegan is a former psychotherapist, life coach, and author of the book Bears Have Issues Too. Fegan worked as a counsellor for over 23 years and offered clinical supervision to other counsellors as well. She is the mother of five children, but on 22nd of May 2017, her life changed forever. One of her children, Martin, attended a concert by Ariana Grande at the Manchester Arena. Little did Martin know, and little did Fegan know, that a terrorist was amongst the crowd and a bomb went off, killing Martin along with 21 other people. It was a moment that shocked and devastated the entire country, with many wondering how a bomb could be smuggled into a venue like that with so many people in attendance. From that moment on, Fegan gave up her career as a therapist to advocate for greater security at venues like the Manchester Arena and began speaking at schools, universities and conferences, talking to children and trying to stop attacks at the MEN happening in the future. She is the architect behind Martin's Law, a campaign which calls for entertainment venues to improve security against the threat of terrorism and would like to make it a requirement in legislation that all venues in Manchester and cities and towns across the UK have a counter-terrorism plan. Her petition to make Martin's Law mandatory received over 23,000 signatures. She has also been presented with the Outstanding Contribution Award at the 2020 Counter-Terror Awards for her efforts in stopping terrorism and radicalisation. On top of all of that, to help people feel less alone, Fegan knits bears and gives them personalities and backstories that often relate to mental illness. Fegan credits Martin with helping her gain recognition of her bears. In 2016, his tweets about the teddies went viral on social media. Her online Depop shop, Imperfect Hearts, sells knitted bears with anxiety, OCD, schizophrenia and other mental health conditions. In this episode, we talk about her counselling journey and how even therapists need therapy themselves, Martin's life, the events surrounding his passing and how she carries his memory with her today. We also talk about what she hopes to achieve with Martin's Law too. So this is how my check-in with Fegan Murray went. Fegan, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so, so much for coming on and taking the time out of your day to chat with me. How are you? How are you getting on? I'm good, yeah. I'm just spending the whole weekend finalising my dissertation I worked on for the last (laughs) few months, so... It's going to be a busy weekend, but it's a okay. lot of a lot of polishing and a lot of fifty-two eyes to go over it, and because you're probably sick of reading it yourself, I imagine. 
Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> we're obviously going to talk all about Martin in this pod, vegan, but we also I also <laughs> want to talk about your life too, holistically. So if you're ready, shall we start the show? Let's start your podcast, Vegan, by talking about your therapy journey or counselling journey, because before Martin's passing, you were a psychotherapist for over 23 years or just short of 23 years. Can you tell me how this journey began and why did you feel inspired to help people professionally with their mental health? I understand you wanted to do it from the age of four. That's quite an early age. Is that right? Yeah, I distinctly remember wanting to be a nurse and help people. I've always, even as a small child, as I said, wanted to do that. And my earliest memory is from the age of four. And it wasn't just a case of oh, playing doctors and nurses or anything like <laughs> that playfully. It, it was genuinely a need to help people. I've always wanted to do that. Then later on in life, I decided to start nurse training and Unfortunately, after my first year, my first marriage broke down and mm. I could no longer logistically and childcare, etc. Logistically, I couldn't continue that training. And I was quite gutted at the time. But then it was pointed out to me that actually I could still do something around mental health because my original plan was to train as a mental health nurse, it just fascinated me, the human mind and how it worked and how it can become poorly and how it can become better. So based on that, somebody then told me, well, why don't you train as a counsellor or therapist? That is very similar to mental health nursing. So I looked into it and the training suited me around childcare. So I did that whilst looking after my family as well. And where do you think that desire came from to help people? Was it innate within you? And was it always innate, would you say? I presume I've just, I was born like that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've always had the desire, even now, you know, although I'm not doing therapy anymore, I always want to help people. Mm. It's just something I do. I'm not trying to sound as if I'm a saint, <laughs> but, you know, I just like putting other people before me. When it came to the counselling, what were the kinds of mental health conditions or traumas or just people with their mental health who needed some therapy? What were the kinds of things that you treated for your clients? Well, the more experienced I got, the wider the issues became, obviously. Over the 20-odd years, I have dealt with suicide ideation, anger management, relationship problems, stress, anxiety bereavement, addictions to some extent, although if it was very ingrained, I would pass on to someone more specialised, abuse issues, OCD type behaviours. It's a wide variety of things. One thing that people might think vegan is that therapists, because they literally treat people for their mental health, that they couldn't possibly have mental health issues themselves <laughs> or struggle with their mental health. But I found out very recently due to my therapist taking her own life that that's not true so let's break down this myth did you have therapy whilst you were treating clients and maybe did your colleagues do too first of all I'm sorry to hear that you, that Thank this you. happened to your therapist that's really sad to hear I remember my sister once bringing me an issue personal issue and she said to me it's all right for you you're a therapist you know how to sort yourself out and I said to her, well, that's actually not quite true because 
it's quite the opposite, actually, because you train years and years at looking at the most inner feelings and, and unpacking emotions. And of course, the drawback of that, it has benefits, but it also has drawbacks because when stuff's going on for you as a therapist, you feel it quite in depth because you've trained years to be empathic and your empathy goes on levels that are far, far deeper. And therefore, the experience you have when things go wrong is quite magnified. And also, therapists have a code of ethics, uh, an ethical framework. And within that, it actually states that we should professionally, and to keep professionally safe for our clients, we should undergo from time to time personal therapy. And I've always, as a therapist, done that every sort of, um, I'd say every two, three years, I'd engage in five, six eight, nine, whatever, however many are needed, therapy sessions just to unpack my own stuff so that it doesn't contaminate my work with my clients. And that's really important because, you know, therapists still go through bereavements, deaths, divorce, arguments with other people, conflicts Mm. with other people. And that actually, that has to be looked at. And you can't just do that by yourself by looking in the mirror. You need to go and speak and offload that to a therapist. I mean, the other thing I would say is in our profession as therapists, we also have to engage in regular supervision. And supervision is not therapy, but it's another way of diffusing any buildup inside the therapist. Do you think in some way that it might be harder to seek therapy or access therapy as a therapist, because you're constantly treating other people, you might not think of yourself that often. Absolutely. So it is really hard to find a therapist when you are a therapist. For me, over the past few years, certainly after Martin died to access therapy, was really hard because some therapists feel, I think intimidated is the wrong word, probably Mm. a bit frightened of not doing a good job because they know I'm a therapist or I was a therapist. (laughs) You you know all the tricks and trades. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So some people, if they're not very confident, may feel they don't work the same as with other clients. So Mm. it it can be a bit tricky. I mean, for me, the added issue is in Greater Manchester, I was quite, I mean, a trained therapist. I trained, I was instrumental in partly training hundreds of therapists over many years I've worked in the local colleges. So therefore, I know an awful lot of therapists. So to go to them when they used to be my ex-students adds then a, f- a further complication that they might feel a bit awkward with me. So mm. it's really hard, yeah. Me and you, Vegan, share some similarities in that we are both in this mental health space in different forms mm. and we both talk or have talked to people with traumatic mental health experiences. Yeah. As a therapist... How did you self-care after listening to trauma like the ones you did and emotionally detached from Fegan the therapist and Fegan the the wife, the mother, the person? Yeah, it's really important to separate your workspace out. In my very early days when I trained, I was in a doctor's surgery, for instance, and as I drove away from the surgery... I mentally, in the room they gave me to do therapy, there was a bookshelf with some empty box files. And I made almost like a ritual after every client went, I made an effort to put each client mentally into one of the boxes. 
and left them behind. And then when I came back the following week, I'd literally opened the box file again, so to speak. I know other therapists have used a similar thing with they were driving to their placement on the street with lots of trees and they'd put each client on a tree. So these are simple methods, but actually also maybe not working in the same space where you see clients really helps. And once you shut that door, that's it. And that differentiation is really important. And again, I go back to the ethical framework in our industry where it stipulates don't just have people surrounding you who are trained counsellors or therapists because you'll just talk jargon. Um, (laughs) Engage in hobbies that are nothing to do with a mental health issue. Engage in activities that are other than mental health. There's a constant call in the profession, in the in the guidelines, that's important to self-care and how to balance that out. It's really important. What do you think are the dangers then of not self-caring or emotionally detaching as a therapist when you're dealing yeah. with people with such deep traumas? Is it burnout? Is it something even worse than that? Absolute burnout, totally. And there are telltale signs of burnout, you know, when you become... Obviously, I trained as a clinical supervisor as well. So in my career, I also had a lot of people who are trained therapists who I gave supervision to, to ensure they work safely. You can always tell when burnout happens because people are saying, oh, that client again. Oh, my goodness. Fed up with that client. Or let's say things like, oh, yeah, that's another bereavement case I'm bringing you. If the person, the client becomes a case, a bereavement case or an addiction case, then that is not great when a therapist starts talking in those terms. But also if you sense that, you know, you get stressed or you see in your counsellor who you supervise signs that they get stressed, then obviously that is the time to talk to yourself or to other therapists about, hang on, where's your self-care? And self-care is also, you know, somebody told me a long, long time, very early in my career, exercise the art of aloneness and said, aloneness, what do you mean? And this person said to me, yeah, aloneness is really, really important to restore. It's got a restorative element to it. Being by yourself is really important every now and then to just quieten your head and your mind. Mm. And this person said, that's got nothing to do with loneliness. It's something completely different. (laughs) We need aloneness to gather our mind. I live on my own at the moment, so I know all about that. (laughs) I think she was so right, this person. It's enough of ever since then really exercise that space that you get for yourself. I just want to reflect on this journey, Vegan. So obviously, taking into account patient confidentiality, what was your proudest achievement on this journey? What was a client maybe whose life you helped turn around or even just a small thing, which seemed quite a big thing for them at the time? Obviously, I can only talk very limited, but I do know that, for instance, I had a very, very depressed client once And I know that being creative is really good for the soul and for the mind. It rests your brain a bit. And I suggested to this person, not suggested, but I said, is there anything creative you ever do to balance things out, your stress levels out? And this person said, well, I used to to paint, but the last time I did it was over 10 years ago. And (laughs) don't even know if I can do it. So I set the challenge saying, get your paintbrushes out and just have a go. Anyway, this person created, started to do that and started creating the most beautiful paintings, 
it turns out this person is a very, very skilled artist <laughs> who has continued to use art. It kickstarted the artistic flair in this mm. person again. In between sessions, I'd get pictures of paintings that were created in between sessions <laughs> and, and it would really warm my heart. So that was really mm. good. So that is a moment that I'm, I really relish in and mm. I'm really fond of. That's lovely. And throughout this journey, Vegan, what do you think it's taught you about yourself? Well, becoming a therapist is not easy. Um, <laughs> it changes you as a person. It uncovers areas of your life you hadn't even known exist. And it's a journey that once you start it, there's no going back. You know, once you have that insight, you can't erase it from your mind. So it becomes harder to exercise small talk to engage I found in, that as well <laughs> isn't it and to engage in lots and lots of friendships and I remember when I used to teach the longer course not the introduction course I used to write on the day one on the flip chart you will increasingly feel lonely on this journey and this is a bumpy ride because you will find that for instance the divorce rate in therapists is super high Wow. And, and you know, I used to say that to the students, be aware that the divorce rate in students is very high, but also you will find you drop people out of your life because you realise they're actually not friends, they're acquaintances. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so many people um, towards the end of the course would feed back to me, gosh, how much truth was in that. I've lost so many who I thought were friends, but yeah. actually I've just got a handful now. <laughs> and you know they always say don't they more than five friends is, is too much so, mm. yeah it, it puts you in a mind frame that is sort of you just think differently to to a lot of other people around you yeah just thinking about it myself before we move on do you think a part of that is how your emotional intelligence starts to get better and better you realize how crap a lot of other people's emotional <laughs> intelligence is to have conversations yeah. and you're able to have all these really deep and personal conversations with people yeah. but they're not able to have it back to you a lot of the time yeah exactly so you know there's the this um, I mean I laugh and joke about it quite often you know when you <laughs> I used to have this when people who you bump into and haven't seen for a long time they say how are you most of the time, actually, if you think about it, people really don't want to know how you are. They just ask because it's a polite thing to do. And the reaction in people always made me laugh afterwards when I'd actually tell them how I am, actually. And if I had a really bad day and I'd tell them, you can literally feel the discomfort of people. They can't deal with it. So actually, it's that in-depth conversation that you can have with other therapists, but you can't have with a lot of people because they don't know how to deal with it. You know, it's a different level, isn't it? And that's a positive, but it can also be a negative. We've talked about Vegan the therapist. I want to go a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, Vegan. So take me back a little bit, if you can. Can you tell me about maybe your early life in Istanbul and then Germany, teenagers, university, mm -hmm. and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the vegan we meet here? I was born in Turkey and when I was about two and a half, my family emigrated to Germany, like so many people from Turkey and Greece and mm. Italy, etc. did. 
And growing up in a, two different cultures was really difficult because I had the Turkish, I mean, my parents weren't religious, but they had the Turkish culture nevertheless. So I was quite restricted in what I was allowed and not allowed. And so were my siblings, but less so my brother. He wasn't quite as restricted as my sister and I. But it was quite difficult at times and challenging. And then I met my first husband and I moved to England. And that was, again, learning yet another culture. Um, you know, <laughs> Very different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I was used to the German culture and then moving to England, talking even in a different language 24-7. It was a challenge getting to grips with vocabulary because in in, in Germany, <laughs> I learned the Queen's English, but in England, nobody talks like that. <laughs> There's a lot but, more sarcasm here. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, even making people laugh and feeling stupid when you get introduced to, to a new colleague, this is a year of moving to England. And I'd reach my hand out like in Germany and say, how do you do? And they'd fall about laughing, <laughs> saying we don't do that over here. <laughs> You know, it's sort of that kind of stupid thing. But there was a lot of adjustment. And whilst I was very young then, and it was all a big adventure, it nevertheless, looking back, was quite a challenging thing for me to adapt to life in the UK. And then, of course, also, you know, I then had sadly marital issues in my first relationship. Looking back, I married far too young. I married into an adventure. It was exotic marrying somebody from another country. It was very exciting moving to another country, but it was like a whirlwind, really. And, and mm. then when I then became really unhappy in my first marriage, that was probably my first experience of mental health, the challenging mm. side. And I did have therapy at the time. It wasn't very successful, but at least I tried to deal with things. And then my second time I had a mental health issue, I guess, was... When I lost both my parents, and when was that? In 2000, they both died within three weeks of each other. When my father first died, I thought, yeah, okay, you're at the age now where your parents become ill or die. That's just the way life goes. But then mm. three weeks later, my mum then died. Mm. That just took me sideways mm. it knocked me sideways because I, I suddenly realized gosh I'm now the, the old generation you know <laughs> a whole generation in my family is gone now so I had bereavement therapy which was quite successful but that then sort of <laughs> reinforced to me how good therapy can be I, I must say I'd also been always interested in the mental health and the issue anyway the, the human mm. mind anyway but then in my second marriage then I said I was in, in the middle of training as, as a nurse. And when then my children displayed signs of distress due to the marriage breakup, I decided to step away from training as a nurse, put it on hold. I prioritized my children. But then I discovered, as I said, the therapy training that I could actually do whilst my kids were at school. So I grabbed that with both hands and, and literally swallowed the training it was fascinating so that's where I am but during my therapy training you also as part of the training you have to engage in personal therapy anyway so that gave me the opportunity to look at other issues sort of that may not have been deep issues but nevertheless it it highlighted the importance of as a therapist engaging in therapy is good housekeeping good mental mm. health housekeeping 
Before I ask a question about identity and where you feel home, can I just briefly ask you about your mum? Because the fact that she passed away three weeks after your dad, do you think that it was from an illness or do you think it was from a broken heart or the fact that she couldn't live without him any longer? I just don't think she felt she wants to be here anymore. Mm. We all suspect that she stopped taking her medication to keep mm. her well and that she did it kind of more or less deliberately, but yeah. that's with hindsight. She felt a bit lost and it was just a reaction that none of us really appreciated until afterwards. That's what we suspect happened. They were married for over 45 years, so it's a long time. To suddenly lose somebody then, it must have been devastating for her. Mm. And of course, none of us lived with her. We were all adults by then and married. Yeah. So I think the loneliness and life without him mm. was too much for her. Given that you were born in Turkey, then emigrated to Germany, then emigrated to England, what mm. country feels like home to you? Do you feel completely Turkish or is it still a mix now? It's really confusing because, um, <laughs> you know, I'm a big fan of sci-fi and it's no surprise because the Star Trek people go everywhere and explore galaxies. I don't know where I am exactly, but what feels mostly home is the UK now. Mm. I've been here since 1983 and I really like the English way of life. I like people here. I like the way, you know, the whole Britishness I just love. Life in Germany was great, but it was difficult because, as I said, I was brought up. I had my teenage years, my childhood years in Germany. And that, that was the childhood bit was OK. But when I then became a teenager, it became quite difficult because I saw all my friends have boyfriends, wear makeup, do their hair, do their, their nails. I was never allowed anything of that. Mm. I remember I was in an all-girls secondary school and I wasn't allowed on a school trip to Munich because there was one male tutor on the trip. <laughs> my teacher actually had to come to my house and speak to my parents, reassuring them that actually he will be staying in a room on his own and, and he's not going to be anywhere near us. It's stupid things like that yeah. that made life really difficult. So Germany always felt a bit cold and disappointing, whereas mm. in the UK I've really found my feet and, and became the person I am today. Can I talk about motherhood now? Because you're the mother of five children, mm. including Martin. So... Can you tell me how motherhood changed your life with all your children and then mm. when Martin came into the world? So motherhood was an interesting journey and it still is actually <laughs> because I naively thought when I have children that once they're 18, that's it, you know, and oh my God, I was so wrong. <laughs> once they're 18, the real issues of parenting, the challenging issues of parenting start, you know, and your children have career choices and, and relationship breakups um, and divorces and moving house and all those kinds of things, you know, that, that happen with them. That poses different challenges. I always thought, oh, uh, what do I buy this child for birthdays when, when they were invited as little children to birthday parties? And, oh, my gosh, what hobbies are they going to engage in? Uh, I have to take them to swimming lessons. I always thought that's complicated. Adult children are far more complex with their issues. So motherhood's been a roller coaster, but it's it's the most rewarding job, no doubt about it. I wouldn't not want to be a mother, and I love all my children immensely. Some of them always say, oh, who's your favourite child? And I always say, <laughs> don't even get me into that conversation. I don't have favourite kids. <laughs> 
it's just amazing. And obviously, I gave birth to four children, but I've got five because Emma, my stepdaughter, came into my life as a little four-year-old. <laughs> and there was an instant bonding. In fact, she calls me mum anyway. Mm. And I have a good relationship with her and her mother, actually, as well. And to me, that is important because... They all grew up together and life was very hectic when they were, you know, with five children. There was I'm one of never, four, so I know I know what it was like. <laughs> yeah. Never a dull moment, I can tell you, but I loved it. Can you tell me what Martin was like as a child and a teenager? You know, how did you see him develop and blossom to the man he was? So I see it reenacted with my, my oldest son's two sons. He's got two boys and... His older son is very quiet, like he, Daniel himself, used to be. And his younger son is just like Martin, boisterous, a bit flamboyant, a bit um, out there and loud and brash. So it's almost like seeing mini versions of Martin and Daniel <laughs> all over again. So Daniel was always the quiet one and Martin was always the, I'm going to have a go I'm going to get into trouble, into mischief. Daniel never wanted to be dirty as a toddler. Martin loved being, I don't know how he did it, I'd put him in clean clothes half an hour later, he'd be filthy again. <laughs> I, I just don't know how he ever did it. And I remember when Martin was about, he was probably about 18 months old, he was sat on the floor in the lounge, and he was probably a bit younger, actually. There was a tin of nappy cream, I had bought a new 500 gram tub, so there was a lot in it. And we just finished decorating the lounge with a new fire, stone fireplace, like they were fashion in those days. And I only nipped in to get something. And I was in the kitchen probably five minutes. I came back and I nearly dropped what I had in my hand because Martin hadn't just covered himself with that white cream. The whole tub had emptied. He was covered. And he smeared a lot of it on the new stone fireplace it never washed out. <laughs> and, and of course, when he then later on, when he was four, I think he ended up in the front of the local newspapers. He actually managed to have to be cut free by firemen from a step ladder, an A ladder. So what he'd done is I was in the middle of decorating or finishing his bedroom I'd just been decorating it and all I needed is put like they were in those, they were fashionable in those days, on top of the wall, ceiling or wall, there was a border, usually a decorative one. You wouldn't see that nowadays, but in those <laughs> days it was fashion. So I was just, I borrowed my next door neighbor's A ladders to just add that border. And Martin was behind me in the room and I said, Martin, stop messing with that ladder. And he said, oh, I'm just playing mum. And anyway, then next thing he started crying and I turned round. I do not know to this day how he did it, but his head poked up from the top of the ladder and the ladder, he was completely dangling in midair with his feet and crying, saying, and the more he wiggled, the more the ladder closed and it closed on his chest. And he said, I can't oh breathe, mum. So I shouted Daniel, who was then six or seven, and I said, I had to hold his bottom up so that he doesn't slide further down to stop you know, he would have struggled breathing. And I said to Daniel, go to the pavement and stop any adult saying mummy needs help. Anyway, this woman comes in with her shopping bags and I shouted, oh, it's up here. Can you come up here, please? So this woman comes and says, oh, my goodness. And I said, 
you can see my predicament. I can't leave him. Would you mind ringing the police or fire service or whoever mm. downstairs? And anyway, next thing, two fire engines came and all these firemen came up the stairs, took a look at him and said, don't worry, we'll have him out in a jiffy. And they put the ladder on the floor with him inside. They tried a good 10 minutes and couldn't get him out. In the end, they had to take heavy cutting equipment and cut the ladder in four bits. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that's the sort that's of thing. That's a local story if I've even heard it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the sort of thing. He just endangered himself all the time. Um, oh, he was a nightmare, actually, a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Where do I go from there? <laughs> Martin was evidently a very mischievous boy. But yeah. he was also, when he got older, very proud of his sexuality. And from the people I spoke to who knew him vegan, you write about Martin's coming out story as a gay man in your book. But yeah. for the listeners who haven't read it, can you tell me about that and how you and your partner reacted to it at the time? It was summer holidays. Martin would have been about 16, just under 16, 15 and a half, something like that. And he said to me, Mum, can I talk to you? There was just him and me at home at the time. And I said, yeah, of course you can. And he said, it's better if you sit down, please. And I said, oh, right, okay, let's make a cup of tea. So I made some drinks, sat him at the kitchen table, and I said, what do you want to tell me? And he started shaking, and he, his voice started shaking, and he went really red. And I said, you are right, Martin. And he said, well, now you're sat in front of me. He said, I don't know if I can tell you, I'm, I'm really I'm really anxious now. And I said, well, don't worry, I'll tell you what you were going to tell me. And he looked puzzled. And I said, you're going to tell me you're gay. And his eyes widened and his mouth bent open. And he said, how did you guess that? And I said, Martin, I knew that since you were about seven or eight. <laughs> and we had a good laugh about it. And the relaxation in him was so immediately visible. His body posture changed. He had a beaming smile. He was so, so relieved. And anyway, then we told my husband, who is Martin's stepdad, and he said, yeah, Martin, don't worry. Your mum and I knew for years. Don't worry. We, we were just waiting for you to tell us eventually. <laughs> so then I had the task of, well, you better tell your dad. So I rang his dad, and I didn't want to tell my ex-husband on the phone. And I said, well, Martin would like to talk to you. It was a Friday when I spoke to him. He said, yeah, okay, I'll come tomorrow morning. I'll come round to the house. So he came over. So my ex-husband and Martin went into the lounge and my husband and I were in the kitchen anxiously waiting for them to have this talk. And we could hear shouting and screaming. And next thing, the door flung open and we ran into the corridor thinking, oh, my God. And my ex-husband looked at me furiously and pointed the finger at me and said, you better make sure he's ready tomorrow at 10. I'm going to take him to a football match. And we have a really good laugh about it now because he honestly thought by taking Martin to a football match, he's going to turn him into a mum um, and, and cure his homosexuality. But actually, years later, we laugh about it so often because what was he thinking of taking a gay young man to a football match with 22 half-naked men? <laughs> Who are very <laughs> athletic so and in very good shape. <laughs> I know, I know. So we, have, we had a good laugh about it, but um, at yeah. the time, obviously, it wasn't that funny, but 
years on it was. Yeah, it's like taking him to a gym in Soho. Just wouldn't have. Just, just not a great idea, was it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How did you see Martin's mental health improve in the sort of days and weeks and months after he came out? Was there a notable difference? Did he act or feel more at one with himself? Totally. He flourished. Feeling accepted by us made him so much more relaxed. It made him obviously experiment with clothing, hair, Mm. whatever. You know, he felt he can have the liberty to do that. He then also started to bring his friends home he engaged in his first relationship with a man and and all of that was only possible because he finally felt accepted and he he didn't have to hide his sexuality on the plus side also he then was freer to bring girls home that were platonic friends and he had really good friends female friends who are still our friends now since martin died but you know they've become family friends So he was able to do all that because he felt accepted. On top of that, he was also able to help other young men and women to come Mm. out of the closet. Can we talk about the night that changed yours and Mm. your family's life forever, Fegan? It was on 22nd of May 2017. If you could, can you walk me through that day, how it began, how you felt? And when did you sense that something might have gone terribly, terribly wrong? So Martin lived in a flat that we owned, but him and a flatmate called Hannah shared that flat, two-bedroom flat, with his cat, Emily. Um, Martin was meant to go on a -a once-in-a-lifetime, two-month trip round North America on his own. You know, he'd saved religiously for two years, and he was so super, super excited about going on that trip. He'd booked all shows and, you know, all his internal flights, etc., He was so excited. On the Sunday morning, he rang me and said, Mum, I don't want Hannah to have any problems with cat food and cat litter while I'm away. Can you take me to a local supermarket and, and buy loads? Because he didn't have a car. So I said, yeah, of course I will. So I drove to his flat, picked him up. We had a right good laugh in the supermarket, came back home, carried it up with him kissed him goodbye and I said, I'll see you Wednesday. That's what I was supposed to do on Wednesday. What I was meant to do was pick him up at 11 o'clock to take him to the airport to start his holiday. And that was that Sunday morning. So I went home the day after Monday, 22nd of May. It was a normal day for me, working day. I'd seen clients all day and I had I remember having quite a, a couple of difficult clients that took a lot of my concentration and I wasn't poorly but I felt a bit under the weather so I said to my husband I'm going to have an early night and out of the five kids only two of them still lived with us my youngest who was then 16 and my second youngest who was then 19 One was revising for her GCSEs in her bedroom that evening. The other one, she was doing an art foundation course at uni. She was getting stuff ready for an exhibition they were asked to do. So they were both in their bedrooms, but I went to bed at 10. And I must have fallen asleep instantly. I was so tired. And my husband was downstairs doing paperwork and watching TV. I was woken up by my second youngest daughter because she had my phone in her hand. So I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm just checking your phone to see if Martin's been in touch. And I said, why would he be in touch? It's Monday evening. (laughs) And she said, well, they've been out with, he's been out with his mates and they're texting me to see if he's contacted me, me or you. And 
I said, where have they been? And she said, mum, they've, they've been at the arena at a concert and mum, there's been an incidence. And I said, incidents, what do you mean? Obviously, by that time I was wide awake. Mm. And she said, mum, there's, there's been an explosion. And she had not finished the word. I ran past her, literally flew down the stairs. My husband was just about to switch the TV off to come to bed. He was watching the news flash and he stood in front of the screen watching it all unfold. And I said, Martin is there and his friends can't find him. He's not answering the phone or anything. And he said, Fegan, that place holds 20,000 people. You know what he's like. He always leaves concerts early. He's already going to be in the gay village buying drinks for his mates. <laughs> uh, and I said, but he's not answering his phone. And he said, you know what he's like? He'll be out of juice. Don't worry, he'll ring you tomorrow morning and not know what it's all about. Anyway, I've got work tomorrow. I'm going to bed. And off he went to bed. And my daughter and I, we made a cup of tea and sat down because his friends were busy texting us and phoning us. So we were sat watching the news, obviously, and talking, chatting to his mates on social media. Obviously, we also tracked what's happening on social media about the attack, which we then realised what, what happened. And probably about 45 minutes after the attack, about quarter past 11, I just had the strangest, strangest of feelings. It was just like somebody got some giant scissors out and cut something off. There was just a connection that disappeared. And I turned to Louise and said, do you know what, Louise? He's dead. And she looked horrified. And she said, Mum, don't say things like that. And I said, I'm serious, Louise. I have no sense of him whatsoever. It's like he's not even on the planet. It just... There's nothingness. I can't sense him anymore. He's gone. I remember one of his friends who was at the concert, she rang us saying, have you still not heard from him? And I took the phone off my daughter and I said, look, you need to prepare yourself for the possibility that he might be dead. And maybe I shouldn't have said that to her so bluntly, but um, she cried and said, oh, don't say that, please. And she was quite distressed about it. So that was that evening, and I think about four o'clock, my husband realised I wasn't in bed, and he came downstairs and then realised just how serious it was. And about half past six, he went back upstairs to get changed for work. He's a GP. And while he was upstairs, there was a message on the screen saying, anybody needing information or support, go to the Etihad Stadium. All I could think of is I need to go to that stadium. So my husband came down quarter past seven and I said, they've just said a message there. I need to go and find where his body is. I'm going to go to the Etihad Stadium, but I'm not in a fit state to drive. I'm going to take a taxi. Mm. And he very calmly took his mobile phone out of his pocket and started ringing someone. I said, what's she doing? And he said, I'm cancelling my surgery. He said, I can't let you go there on your own. I need to be with you there. So I didn't think anything of it. I was just grateful that I don't need to take a taxi. Mm. So I thought, great, okay. Months later, I had a conversation with him saying, you never leave work, you never don't go to work. Why did you decide to come with me that day? And he said, as soon as you said Etihad Stadium, my heart sank because I envisaged, if they're asking you to go to a football stadium, that football stadium lawn is going to be full of dead bodies covered with sheets. Mm. 
and they're asking you to identify Martin. I hadn't even considered that, but obviously it makes total sense. So we were at the Etihad Stadium, initially my husband and I, a lot of Martin's friends then one by one came and joined us. By tea time, then at six o'clock, I asked the police to bring my children. So all my kids were there. There were other families, obviously, similar to us waiting and, and not knowing what happened to their loved ones. And you'd see people in the corridor on the way to the toilet or back, and you catch each other's eyes and you just hug each other, strangers, or you burst out crying and somebody comforts you or you comfort someone else. We were all in the same mess, really, in the same awful, awful mess. And one by one, the police started to take people out into side rooms and then 10 minutes later, they'd emerge in tears and we knew they had bad news. As the family numbers dwindled, there were then only two or three of us families left. And in the end, about quarter to 10 in the evening, it was our turn to be taken into a room. By that time, there were probably about 25, 30 of us. And this poor young policewoman, our liaison officer, one of them, had to give us the sad news. So that's when we were told that Martin was one of the 22 people who were killed that night. In that moment, did you see maybe the worst and the best side of humanity? Uh, this poor policewoman cried as she said it and my husband gave her a big hug and comforted her and I looked around the room and obviously my oldest son just walked on his own into the corner of a room he needed to have that space and I just went about the business of comforting everybody else in the room I could see it was just very difficult. We all came to our house. All of all of his friends came to our house and stayed the night. The days that followed, there was a stream of people, neighbours, friends, relatives, obviously family. So much support. The local community, who didn't know us necessarily, but they'd drop us flowers at the doorstep, food. There was so much kindness. We lived opposite a row of shops. There's a delicatessen there. And we came home and they'd made loads of food. There was a whole, almost like a buffet of food on the table that they'd made specially for us because they, they could see opposite our house. You know, they, they could see that we had lots of people coming and going. So they didn't want us to worry about making food. So the community, I cannot describe how kind they were. Mm. How did life from that moment change for you, Fegan? What was that? grieving process like for you personally? Well, as I was in the Etihad Stadium, it was probably about mid-morning and by that time probably about 15 or 20 of his friends had arrived and I was, you know, the comforting each other and I was looking at them and looking at my husband and looking at my ex-husband and his wife who were there and looked utterly devastated and I thought, today life's changed forever and my job I'm not going to be able to do. I need to deal with that at some point. Having closure with my clients, my existing clients. But I knew that day I can't continue my job. I knew life as we knew it would change forever. It was just really difficult. Did the fact that you had to give up your therapy, surgery or practice, did that feel like an extra grief? 
Absolutely. I was accredited. I was a clinical supervisor. I had over 22 supervisees, 22 or 23. I had a caseload of clients. I had, I was a life coach. I had life coaching clients. I had a full practice that I thoroughly enjoyed and I loved my work. I worked so hard for all the titles after my name. And It was also, you know, I had a professional standing within the counselling community in Stockport and Manchester. A lot of people knew me and all that disappeared in one night. So I lost my son, I lost my job, I lost my financial independence, I lost my income, I lost my professional standing, everything went that night. Ariana Grande did a special concert called One Love Mm. Manchester, which was a benefit held a few months later on 4th of June 2017 in memory and celebration of Martin and the other victims who died vegan. Did you Mm. go to that event? And if so, what was that feeling like at the venue for you? The One Love concert, yes, we did. I remember the police putting on lots of buses for the families of the bereaved. And I also remember as we approached the venue, there were thousands and thousands of people in queues waiting to get in. And we bypassed all the queues and were taken by bus to the very front. And one of the the most eeriest but heartwarming moments was as the families came out of the bus and walked over to the entrance. All the public that were hundreds of people who saw us exit that bus and walk across, they were all clapping. The sound of that will never leave me. It was just so kind, so kind, you know, so respectful. It showed me that actually what happened wasn't just for us. The whole city grieved, the entire entirety of Manchester grieved really and there was so much love there so the One Love concert was really aptly named. We were in a family area, the press and the media were not allowed to access us at all which felt safer. Obviously that's the first time a lot of us families met and saw each other and made connection with one another so that was quite good. On the other hand We were all freshly bereaved and certainly with hindsight, I was in cloud cuckoo land at the time. I don't (laughs) even, you know, I was so in in my deepest part of my grief and so were my kids, really. It was a mixture of crying, laughing, hugging, more crying, more laughing, singing. It was a mixture of all of that. So much emotion. It's incredible. As you know, vegan grief for someone who's died of natural causes is one process and there's I guess a certain established path for grief even though grief is not linear there's a certain level of emotional you know clarity or journey that you go on but for you to lose your son in such a horrific way how on earth do you grieve for that when someone has has taken your baby away from you? Yeah I thought about that it is a very different way of grieving when you lose somebody through a terrorist attack because you're thrown into this whirlwind of very public death because obviously the papers name people who died, they show pictures of people who died. We have journalists coming to the door, etc. It's it's not a private death. Mm. It's the country's grieving for one. him, yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. But actually, it's also unfortunately because of the nature of it being a terrorist attack, it's going to be staying public because there's the five-year five anniversary coming next year. We had the one-year anniversary. That was a big thing. 
in 10 years, it's going to be a big thing. In 25 years or 20 years, it's going to be a big thing. It's a bit like the 9-11 attack. This September is the 20th anniversary. It's going to be a big thing. And I know it's going to be super difficult for people who have lost loved ones there at the 9-11 attack, who I know personally, I know some of those people, and I know how difficult that is for them. So even after 20 years, they have to relive that. Had Martin died through natural causes or a traffic accident or suicide, it would have still been very devastating, but the death would have been more private and Mm. the grieving process would have been more private, whereas this is never private. I know this is an uncomfortable question, Fegan, but for you on this grief journey, what has been or what is now your emotions towards the perpetrator himself? Has it changed Have you tried to channel forgiveness or is it still just too painful? I have not been angry from day one. The forgiveness didn't come in straight away simply because I didn't think about it. But on day three after the attack, I happened to see a photo because we didn't have the TV on and radio because it was all over the news constantly. Mm. But somebody kept going buying newspapers and piling them on a table I suddenly saw the photo of the perpetrator on the front page and I I froze on the spot and I thought, oh my God, you're so young. Can't believe you did that. What do you know about anything at that age? How can you even do that? And the enormity of what you've done, how can you throw your life away and that of so many innocent people? That felt quite powerful to me. But over the next few days, it made me think, Why is this even happening? Because I realised I knew nothing about terrorism at all. Not only that, you know, when it used to be on the news, I'd think, oh, those poor people, look at them, they're comforting each other. Isn't it sad? Anyway, what do you want for tea? Or shall we watch the chase? Can we change channels? I'd do that because it was uncomfortable. And also, to me, terrorist attacks didn't happen in my life. They happened in London and in Paris and in major cities and abroad. And mainly in America with the school shootings and all that. That was a concept like that in my head. But seeing that photo really made me think deeper. And having trained as a therapist, unfortunately, I say unfortunately, maybe it's fortunately, gave me the skill of not immediately reacting very strongly and stepping back, looking at the bigger picture. So I tried to do that. I tried to think in my private moments, why is that happening? Why is terrorism a thing? A lot of questions came up to me about why Why is the world in the state we, we are in? Why do people do this? But of course, I didn't have the answers. Forgiveness came in, I can pinpoint the day, about two and a half weeks after the Manchester Arena, the Finsbury Mosque attack happened. But I didn't mm. know again because I didn't have the news on. But one morning, everybody had finally gone back to work and to college and uni and my relatives had gone, the police had stopped coming. So I found myself on my own that morning, went to the shop, bought the Guardian. I was just about to sit down and have breakfast and I saw on the front page this photo of this man on the floor with five people surrounding him and forming a human chain. And I thought, oh, what's that? So I read it and that was the Finsbury Mosque attack where these five people from the mosque, including the imam, formed a human chain around this guy on the floor, who was obviously the terrorist who tried to kill Muslims as they were leaving the mosque. 
And that picture had a profound impact on me. And by the time my husband came home that evening, I said, this is what happened. This is my experience. Look at this article. And I have decided to go on national TV to publicly forgive the terrorists who killed Martin. I said, I feel that it's too simple to just say, this is somebody who did this awful thing. There are reasons and I need to do this. And that's exactly what I did the following day, the following day or the day after I went on national TV. And, and that was important to me. Following on from that, obviously, I had more and more questions in my head. And I decided to do a master's in counterterrorism. I could have done textbook learning, but I by then had started school talks and I was invited to talk at this particular university to counterterrorism students. And in the break between the two talks, I was in the staff room and I said, you know, I have so many questions around terrorism. I would love to do a course like this because, you know, I might find some of the answers. So one of the tutors gave me the syllabus and I looked at it and I thought, oh, this is exactly what I want to know. So I said that to him and he just turned around to me and said, well, why don't you do the course? So I said, okay. And so I did. Yesterday, I listened to an interview you did for the Case Files podcast, Vegan, mm. where you talked about a screw that was moving when you went to do the washing <laughs> yeah. in your basement a few yeah. days after Martin died. Now, mm. you said it was the spirit of Martin talking to you. Did you believe in ghosts <laughs> the crudest way or spirits before that? And how did that moment affect you? No, I didn't believe in any of that. And I'm not sure about life after death and all those deep questions. I'm not religious. But I literally, I was three days after he died, I realised, you know, my family came in and everybody cooked and cleaned and helped out. But nobody thought about doing the washing. So I thought, that washing basket is full, I need to wash. So I went in the basement and as I put my washing in, I heard this clinking noise. And I looked up and I thought, what's that? And there was a big shiny screw that was still moving on top of the dryer and I looked around and it literally we had newly decorated the room so there was absolutely nowhere it could have come from but I picked it up and walked over to the dustbin trying to throw it away and I suddenly thought oh that's Martin because that couldn't have come from anywhere so I held on to it and since that day, I've been literally finding nuts, bolts and screws everywhere, wherever I go in the world, whether that's New Zealand, New York, Istanbul, wherever I've been since his death, I find them. And the latest three I found actually last week, I was in London at a big meeting. And as I was about to walk to the underground away from the meeting, there were three identical shiny screws within 20 metres of each other just as I was walking to the station and I'm thinking, yeah, that's your idea of telling me, teasing me, saying I'm here. Life has moved on for many people in Figa and mm. life has moved on for you too. And we'll talk about how you channeled that grief in a bit. But for people like you, it's not as simple as flicking a switch and moving on like most people eventually did because mm. this lives with you forever. So mm. how difficult was it for you and your family to move on and where are you at now? Yeah, it's important to move on. So my, my kids obviously all have done different things. One of my daughters, Louise, unfortunately, because of what happened, she she was about to go to university and sadly 
emotionally she couldn't deal with it at the time so she never went to university I mean she's doing other interesting stuff now but uh, at the time that changed her life course really unfortunately all my other children have moved on with their lives and are doing great things and and they have good careers and, and good life choices my husband sadly had to give up one of the two things he was doing so it's affected him career-wise quite a bit as well and mine as I said mine stopped but even I have channeled my stuff into a different direction obviously I do a lot of very different things now. And after his passing you also accessed therapy to process and deal with this trauma what was that like for you and, and did it help you? Obviously going to the morgue seeing him and the week after going to the arena to the exact spot where he died Those two days were by far the two most difficult days of my life. And they traumatised me. It was important I did both. I would not have done them. But I knew even when I was there, this is going to really mess my head up. I knew it as a therapist that it's going to damage me. And unfortunately, it left me with images and, and all sorts of stuff. So I accessed EMDR therapy, which helped me separate the image from the emotion and without that therapy I wouldn't even be able to talk to people publicly about this and Mm. do my school talks. Something that I've done as well can you just briefly explain what EMDR is for the listeners vegan why it's so helpful with people who've gone through trauma or PTSD? Yeah so it looks if if you were an onlooker looking at somebody having EMDR therapy (laughs) it looks quite funny actually because somebody (laughs) literally holds a pen in front of you and wiggles it left to right and you have to really follow it very quickly because it goes back to front very quickly. But actually, it does the trick because it literally confu- well, it cancels out the emotion from the picture. It separates it it out completely. Uh, I mean, I'm not EMDR trained, so I can't go into the technicalities. <laughs> but it honestly really works. Uh, I mean, for most people, it it is really good. Some people don't respond to it that well, but yeah. got to be open to it, don't you? So. Yeah, yeah. For me, it it really did the trick. It did what it says on the tin. I'm sure there are thousands of parents out there, vegan, like you, who have lost children. So for the listeners, if there are any parents who might have lost children, what one message or advice would you give them from your experience? Because I imagine unless you've lived it, that reality is pretty indescribable, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Obviously, if there are other children, make sure you don't just talk about the, the person who died. Really don't turn your home into a shrine. That, that is really important because, you know, one of my daughters said the other day, gosh, there's bees everywhere in the house. And I don't buy the bees to remind me of the Manchester Arena attack. People give them to me as gifts. So I've quietly removed two or three of them that are too much in, in your face. But talking about how grieving is for everybody in the family is really important. We've had family therapy, which was very valuable. Because we grieve as a family. When a child dies, if there are other children, you grieve as a family. And that's really important. Celebrating anniversaries and birthdays and Christmas and all that is important. But what we tend to do is we tend to have a moment rather than the whole event. Because otherwise it contaminates. The grief overshadows everything. 
and the fact is life still goes on for the rest of the family and and uh, other children and grandchildren so it's important not to let that overshadow everything having photos but not everywhere that kind of thing yeah really i was going to say it sounds like a hard balance to strike because you don't want to make it a taboo and not mention it mm. but if you mention it too much it might become I don't know what the right phrase is without being unkind, but sort of overbearing, or it might yeah, make people yeah. not want to talk to you about it because you talk about it so much. Is that would that yeah, be fair to say? Right, yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's stuff like you know we we have a rule we don't. For instance, my husband and I go to court to the inquiry, but we have a rule that as soon as we reach the train, we stop talking about it, and we pick it up the day after when we go to court the next day. And it's part of our self-care and, and boundaries. You, you need to be boundaried with, with these things, otherwise it does become overwhelming. If Martin was listening to this pod, Vegan, maybe mm. he sent a screw somewhere along the way on this podcast <laughs> recording. What do you think you would say to him and what do you think he would say to you? I would say to him that he'll never be forgotten, obviously, and I love him so much and, and hopefully he would be pleased with the amount of work I do but that actually yeah I don't want him to have died for nothing and as a final question vegan going Mm. on this journey as you have what has it taught you about yourself do you think when it comes to grief or throughout your mental health journey um it's not so much about myself but uh, human nature that I'm Mm. sort of uh, amazed at the resilience a human being can have and that people can change completely I mean I literally used to be an introvert I used to be really shy and quiet I've gone completely the opposite way now and I feel it's changed me fundamentally as a person it's taken away my fears of humans like I used to quite like the one-to-one with my clients because I didn't have to deal with lots and lots of people (laughs) Anything above five people to me was a crowd before. Now I don't mind speaking in front of hundreds of people. I Had somebody told me that five years ago, I would have laughed at them. (laughs) But it is what it is, you know, I've changed. Yeah, so I've learned that human resilience is just fascinating. And again, it's the human mind, isn't it? The power of the human mind, which brings me back to the very first, how we started, you know. The human mind is just... um, something that we know so little about and it's so powerful. After Martin's death, Vegan, you decided to become a public speaker and advocate for greater security at venues Mm. like the one Martin was at and to stop radicalisation of young people too. Mm. Can you tell me how this journey began when you sort of found out that there wasn't watertight security at the venue and was it a way to channel your grief do you think looking back well it gave my grief a purpose so there's two things I do obviously the school talks the school talks started first however the issue around security wasn't even a thing until about 18 months after he died because that's the first time I ventured into Manchester for an event because my husband was given some tickets for a small music concert of a singer he liked. So he and I went early December into Manchester. And I remember getting ready saying, I'll take my smallest handbag. It'll make the bag search easier. Naively, I assumed after the attack that security is going to be a priority in a lot of these places where people assemble. 
And to my shock and horror, that wasn't the case. We walked straight <laughs> in. There was staff there. They were chatting. And we walked straight in to our seats. Nobody even checked our tickets for the entrance, never mind anything else. So during the concert, I started to cry at one point, And my husband said, it's a song, isn't it? And I said, no, I'm not even listening. I'm really <laughs> upset about the lack of security. So literally, that was the reason I got so upset about it. I was just horrified. So that was early December. So Christmas came and went, New Year started, and I was still in January chewing on this emotionally. I just found it outrageous. In the meantime, obviously, I also did a bit of research, and I came across the realization through all the, the stuff I found that actually security is only a recommendation of the government. There is no legislation up to now at all to keep venues secure. There's only guidelines and recommendations. You can do, we recommend you do this, that or the other, but there is literally no security. And the general public don't know that. I didn't know. You see somebody in a high-vis jacket and naively we all think, ah, well, there's somebody in uniform or in a high-vis jacket. They are trained, they are security. And we don't think that that might be somebody on a zero-hour contract or just somebody who's earning a bit of extra cash without any training or very limited training. So we, as a public, put our faith into that and think we are safe. Uh, and, of course, during my training, I also learned that the attack methodology of terrorists has changed in 2014 and that is the year when lone actors started to emerge. Of course, in, in 2017, that was a lone actor who did the arena attack in Manchester. So knowing that, that security is only a recommendation, I thought that is just not okay for me. That is not acceptable. And I thought, how can I change this? And I looked into petitions and I decided instead of going down the change.org or whatever, I went down the, the government public campaigning. I went down a public petition through the government website. And I looked at it and I thought that takes six months. And after 10,000 signatures, the government has to reply. So I went down that route and it was really interesting and telling of the lack of people's understanding of security because you laugh at this now. So at the same time as my petition, mine kept creeping up very slowly, up to 23,000 signatures. Halfway through, there were two petitions running alongside. One was bring back Jeremy Kyle. That whizzed past and increased in the hundreds of thousands. And the other petition was an even more ridiculous one, bring back plastic straws from McDonald's. And that overtook my petition by the hundreds. What a time capsule into society that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when you when you take mine, you know, you have Jeremy Kyle, you have plastic straws, and there's mine to keep everybody safe. <laughs> so the mind boggles. It does, doesn't it? Mm. So but anyway, I can smile about it. But halfway through this petition, I got a phone call of Joe Cox's husband, Brendan Cox. And he said, senior petition, I want to help you. And I said, fine, great. So he came on board, introduced me to Nick Oldworth, who was at the time working for the Met Police, and he's now retired and therefore can help with the inquiry, with the petition more, with the campaign. 
So the three of us and another person, Travis Frayne, went to visit the then security minister and that then got the ball really rolling once we were at the home office talking to ministers. And I remember sitting in the minister's office and saying to him, because they said, is there something final you want to say before the end of the meeting? And I said, look, as you can see, I'm only five foot. And I said, I just want to make it clear, I'm not going to go away with this. I'm going to be like an irritating fly buzzing around your head. And I said, and if you think small is not effective, I said, I read a saying that if you think small is not effective, you've never been in bed with a mosquito. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to be that that's German. That's German persistency as well, I think you might have, you might have used <laughs> I don't that. know what it is, but, <laughs> but I said I would not go away and I haven't gone away. And once my dissertation is finished, I'm going to be more active on Twitter again and talk about Martin's Law more. But the main thing is I didn't go away and it's gone to a public consultation, obviously, and the government is evaluating the results of this consultation now and hopefully in the new year it's going to be put forward as a proposed bill. One quote you said to me off air, Fegan, which just floored me was this. You said, I couldn't save him, but I can do the best I can to stop this happening to other young people. How do you feel hearing that back? I mean, I don't feel guilty that he died and I don't feel I'm responsible entirely for his death. But I feel I don't want any other parent or mother or family to be in the situation we are all in because it's life-changing, it's devastating, Mm. it, it messes your whole future up completely. And I feel that I can do this in his name because this is something that can be avoided and deaths through lack of security are unnecessary. And it is ridiculous that there are laws to say how many toilets you need, how hot the food has to be in canteens, how many fire exits you need, yet there is no legislation to keep the public safe. And I think that is just outrageous Mm. and has to change. We talk a lot on this podcast with many guests, Vegan, about PTSD, but we also talk Mm. about post-traumatic growth. So have you experienced this following Martin's death in the first instance? And then secondly... Do you think there is, in a way, a stigma around it too? Do you think people think that there's no way someone could or even should be able to grow after such a horrific or traumatic event like this? I didn't even hear about post-traumatic growth until I suppose I've experienced it myself. I didn't plan to do all the work I'm doing after Martin died. It just evolved. But, you know, something in me, I think what happened to me is when it all happened and I I started to think clearer I just thought you killed my baby you watch what I'm gonna do and I didn't mean it in an angry way I meant it in the I'm gonna beat this anger and hate with the opposite and that was my intention to not enter into hate and anger and all those negative emotions I didn't want them right from the start because I felt had I engaged with those negative feelings I would not have been able to, frankly, to continue as a mother to my other kids. I could have resorted to alcohol. I could have resorted to stuff loads of medication, Mm. self-medicated with sending my head into a place full of medication. I didn't want that. I am married. I want to be a good wife to my husband. Um, I've got grandkids. I want to be a good grandmother to my grandkids. 
all those roles I play in my life, I could not have continued had I succumbed to hate and anger and all that negativity. And at the end of the day, that's what terrorism aims to achieve. They aim to create that fear, hate, anger, all those negative things. I feel that I want to break the cycle of hate and destruction by doing the opposite. And the post-traumatic growth thing happened and evolved as a result of all of that, I think. You know, as we're saying as well, at time of recording, we're seeing how that hate is manifested and what's going on in Afghanistan. So Absolutely. Yeah, it's even more per- it's even more prescient and more pertinent right now. Can I talk to you about the work that you do with young people on this now? Because you work and speak to young people about the dangers of radicalization mm. and as social media has exploded, you know, even in the last four years, it, you know, it's it's been proliferated more. I mean, I'm reading a book called iGen, which is by Jean Twenge, and she wrote about how social media is distorting young people's lives, basically. And this was four years ago before TikTok. So and now we've got TikTok. So can you just tell me about how you speak to young people, the issues you talk to them about, and how difficult is it for them in this age of social media when it comes mm. to radicalization? So it started with the picture of the, the young perpetrator who did the arena attack. When I realised the young age, I knew then, although I knew I was deeply bereaved and not functioning, a part of me thought, gosh, when I'm better, I need to speak to young people. And that happened to me the day after the anniversary, the first anniversary. I said to my husband, now the first anniversary is out of the way because I was really dreading it. I feel I am now wanting to do some work. I need to speak to young people. And I started approaching schools. And the reason why I speak to young people is because, as I said, this guy was so young and I felt that secondary school children are only a few years away from that age and they are the future adults very soon. And I felt that the internet, and again, it's just researching it all, even then, I felt the internet caused a real danger to young people by being radicalised online and perpetrators, the not perpetrators, the uh, recruiters, the mm. online recruiters, know exactly how to access young people. And there are so many channels like TikTok, like gaming channels, like um, Facebook, Twitter, all the channels really, there's loads and loads of them. And they're not always obviously recruiting on the surface. They'll start like pretending to be a gamer. They'll encourage a person to buy headphones, to talk more privately. They'll say, I've got a really good cheat on this game, but I can't tell you on this channel. Here, go on this (laughs) channel. And once they've got them in a private channel, that's when it really starts the brainwashing. But they'll start even on other channels, uh, on you know, simply by uh, on other social media platforms, by talking about lifestyle, music, sport, football, all that, quite innocently, and they draw people into conversations, and then it gets more sinister. But young people are spending so much time on social media, mm. and they are falling prey to these people and unfortunately it's not dissimilar to sexual grooming actually Mm. Um, they use the same tactics so I go to schools and talk to people about the tactics recruiters use about the types of conversations they engage in the topics how they can recognize signs of being radicalized how they can recognize in others or themselves when things go wrong, and if that happens, what to do, where to get help and support. So I think that's really important, in particular now, 
with having just been through COVID and lockdowns, there's a particular, you know, I always say to the children, look, recruiters have not used the lockdown to bake banana bread and do jigsaws. They have been very busy recruiting because they know that they look for any vulnerabilities in people. Yeah. It's just an so that's awful, why I do this. awful world. It's just an awful world to navigate. You know, I remember when I was a child and we get police officers come in to talk to us and they talk about don't talk to a stranger or you know <laughs> things like that. And it seems quite archaic looking back, actually, because yeah. in, a, in some ways in a, as a teenager, you need to be able to talk to strangers to, you know, have to social skills yeah. or talk to someone yeah. if, like you said, if you're uh, if your son's stuck in a ladder. So how do you empower those children to be able to navigate the real world and navigate the virtual world safely too. So I say to them how to keep themselves safe and how to access help and support. I tell them to download the app called Act Early, which the government have brought out, which gives practical advice and, and all the stuff I'm talking about is on there. But it also um, I also tell the children about that they are the future adults and if they want to live in a less horrible world they have the power within them to change that direction the way the world we go and I always say we grown-ups have made the world a mess look at what happens around everywhere but I said I always say to them you can be the difference you can make that difference and I always tell schools give each child when I come a post-it note size of paper or card and a pen and I always bring an empty gift box with me like in the size of a shoe box and I always say to the children, I want every single one of you to write down one act of kindness you're prepared to commit that day, no matter how small, be that make a cup of tea for your family member or empty the dustbin without being asked for once or mm-hmm. uh, empty the dishwasher or apologize to a friend or just sit somebody at the table who you normally don't sit with at lunch anything like that. Some of the responses the children gave are just amazing. Even as simple as I'm going to tell my mum I love her more. That warms my heart to hear that. But that's what's missing on this planet. We have become a world without compassion, without love, without kindness, without empathy. And these are the values I tell the children about. And I always say, you should not fear difference. You need to embrace difference as an enrichment to your own life. Don't be scared of it. Ask questions if you don't understand any cultural stuff. Ask. People would love to explain it. And I say to them, there's only one human race you need to worry about, and that's one humankind. And if you turn the word round, it makes it kind human. Mm. So kindness is one of the most important values on this earth. And I say you as a future generation of adults, you have a responsibility to adopt those values, but to pass them on to future generations. And that is what I leave the children with. Mm. You make such a good point there, Fegan. And, you know, this isn't a political podcast, but you talk there about sort of embracing difference. And Mm. we live in such a polarised and divided society now as adults. Do you think that's what you say is so important, not just for race, sexuality and sex, but political beliefs and values because I see all the time now I'm having conversations with people and I try and bring up certain topics and people's just eyes they just glaze over it's like someone puts a a curtain over them and they just don't want to talk about they don't want to talk about a certain topic or a certain thing and and I do fear I do fear for the kids coming up now 
Yes, it is. But a lot of it, you know, a lot of these intolerances are based on fear, fear of difference. Oh, my God, there's people coming over with boats. That's fear. They're going to attack us. There's an instant fear. And oh, my God, there's lots of people coming from Afghanistan. What if one of them is a terrorist? It's fear. We're so consumed by fear that we're not open to stuff. And, and that's that's such a shame. Can we just quickly talk about the dissertation you're writing on Martin's yeah. Law? So how is that going and, and what has it taught you about yourself and, and what, are you, what are you investigating in it, basically? So I'm investigating the capacity of Martin's Law saving lives, but it has to be, I, I'm basically saying, just changing the legislation in the protect duty is not sufficient. It has to be accompanied by, first of all, the nation needs to be told that there is a law that didn't exist before. Secondly, I'm saying that still isn't enough. There has to be a public awareness campaign to make sure that the society as a whole takes co-responsibility for their own safety because attack methodologies having changed, it makes it very difficult for just police and government to do that job on their own because attacks are so unpredictable. So I want people to have their awareness about their own safety raised through campaigns. Our final topic of conversation, Vegan, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? A mixed bag, really, because <laughs> obviously because of my bereavement, I do not sleep well at all. I still have very sadly this thing about I can't go to bed before about 10 to 11 because it's about the time I found out he's dead because um, or that, that even something happened. I still can't reconcile in my head that I was fast asleep in bed while he was lying dead on the floor. Mm. As a mother, I find that really difficult. I hate the 22nd of each month. I hate 22, 31 of each day. So those are the mental health issues I'm battling with. So the rest of the time I keep myself busy, but it's just, that's just not good times. And obviously Christmas, birthdays, anniversaries, they're always difficult, mm. but they'll always be difficult. And that's not just me with Martin and what happened. It's for every bereaved person, I think. What age do you think you were, Fegan, when you first became self-aware of your mental health and you realised the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Probably as an early adult, when I had these conflicts about living in a multicultural society in Germany, it dawned on me that I was treated totally different to my classmates and, and their families, you know, so it was all so different and I felt like, what's wrong with me that I can't live like they do? So that was the first time really that I struggled with my mental health a bit. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And looking back, did it feel like a big burden and weight had been lifted? Did it feel like a big moment? Or did it feel like something quite small and insignificant and normalised? I think it was uh, conversations I had with one of my friends. We were probably about 16, 17. That was the first in-depth conversation I was having with somebody. And that was one of my German friends who had broken up with her boyfriend. And boyfriend is a concept I wasn't allowed to even engage in it <laughs> in those days. But uh, she'd broken up and, uh, and I couldn't quite understand why she was so heartbroken. 
And it's then that it made me realise actually emotions are some, something so important. I was pretty shielded from any of that because, as I said, I wasn't allowed to have boyfriends or do anything that the European girls were allowed to do. So I was never in danger of breaking up with a boyfriend at that age. But I saw it in action and I saw what it did to my friend and how depressed she got. And that's the first time I came in touch with emotions that are huge what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health vegan or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked out for you and maybe Mm. which ones that you've tried but haven't right so as a therapist i always used to tell my clients get creative if you're feeling down when i felt down after i had a mental uh, not not a mental health i had a, a health condition i lost my hearing on my left ear 60% of it I lost and I've got tinnitus really loud on that ear. I lost that about a year and a half before Martin died and that affected my mental health in so far that these were my working tools, my ears. And of course, not being able to hear properly started getting me down and I went to the doctor and my GP said, look, this can cause depression in most people. 80% of people with hearing loss and tinnitus get depressed I thought, okay, I took antidepressants for a very short while that he, because he insisted on, the, yeah, it'll do me good. So I took them for about six months and then stopped. But more importantly, it made me realize that, well, actually, if I'm feeling like that and I tell my clients to get creative, get creative. So I started knitting and sewing, knitting bears and sewing hearts. And that really made a huge difference to my mental health. But I also enjoy doing jigsaws and jigsaws to me are always very symbolic of life because life can be a mess and then you put a framework in by doing the frame of the jigsaw (laughs) and you find each missing piece and by the end of it your picture is complete again so to me jigsaws have always been very symbolic so I do a lot of jigsaws so I can't wait for hunting to hunt my dissertation in so (laughs) I will be between now and Christmas doing stack loads of jigsaws. (laughs) And of course, reading books um, that are not textbooks, they're novels. I've got a whole stack of them that I would like to engage in reading to balance out going to court midweek and then rest my brain. Mm. On books, what is the best book or I normally put it mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? I quite like an author called Paul McGee. He's not a trained therapist, but he is just brilliant. He's known as the sumo guy. I often quoted him in therapy and and a lot of my clients went then subsequently and bought the book. He is a very practical guy who comes up with amazing ways of changing your perspective. So it's a book I recommend highly to anybody who wants simple solutions it's just a book that you can dip in and out of. You know, he talks about hippo time, which basically means, yeah, if something bad happens, you need to go away, sit down and lick your wounds and feel sorry and pathetic about it all. Sorry for yourself and and feel a bit tearful and and just have self-pity. But he says the essential time is that you don't stay in that place. So have your hippo time. But don't uh, wallow. Rolling in the mud of (laughs) self-pity, but don't stay there. That's one of the best things in that book that that is written. And I I like the whole book, really. And as a final question, Vegan, and this is a broad one, so you can answer it as many ways as you want. What more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life 
feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it. So there's a book by Charlie Makasi called, I never remember the title, Bevit. It's this one. For the listeners. So what does that say? The boy, the mole, the fox and the house, or the horse. Fox and the horse. The horse, yeah. <laughs> so, and it's a, a very beautifully illustrated book. It's all handwritten, the entire book, and you can read it through in 10, 15 minutes. There's simple things like <laughs> it talks about friendship and kindness. And, you know, there's one, one example here. What's the bravest thing you've ever said? Asked the boy. Help, said the horse. And to mm. me, this book is like, uh, there's another one here that I'd like to really point out. There you are. Sometimes, said the horse. Sometimes what? Asked the boy. Sometimes just getting up and carrying on is brave and magnificent. And it's about the very childlike honesty about the human mind, how fragile we can be. And it's okay to say, I'm fragile. I'm struggling today. If people can only be more open about that, they'll be surprised as to how much help there is there, actually, and how many people are in the same boat but never say it. Figa Murray, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you. Wow, what an episode that was. I think we've come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast, but I want to say a massive thank you to Fegan for being my special guest. I hope this podcast has been an accurate and appropriate celebration of Martin's life and has hopefully given you, the listeners, the heartbreaking reality of what it's like as a parent to lose your child. I hope none of you ever have to go through that. I will put some links to where you can find out more about Fegan's work Martin's Law and follow her on social media in the show notes. I will sign us off by saying thank you to all the venters who tuned in for this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it if you're feeling generous. Drop us a five-star rating and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us out with all of those algorithms. And if you want to support us even further, you can support our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Venthelpuk is spelled V-E-N-T-H-E-L-P-U-K. If you don't want to do that, you can drop us a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it's always okay to vent.